glorify your name through me, and together we might say glorify your name through us. And today as we uh, take time for prayer this morning, that is our prayer, that we would glorify our Lord through uh, our worship and through our prayer. And before we do pray, I want to mention just a couple of things to you. Um, for, for months now, we have collectively been praying for uh, Jenny Caterer, uh, formerly Jenny Schulenberg, uh, who grew up in this church and whose uh, mom and dad are here almost every week, and she was Pastor Jeff's administrative assistant uh, until she got sick, and she was diagnosed with a very serious form of cancer eight months ago. And this week, uh, after eight months of treatment and, and, and just a very, very unimaginably difficult journey, her doctors actually have declared that she is in remission uh, from that cancer. Uh, yeah. Incredibly good news, incredibly um, gratifying news, joyful news uh, for their family and for all of us here in our church family. She still does face another stem cell transplant coming up in a couple of weeks and uh, more treatment and rehab from some damage that the, that the disease has done uh, to her body. But we do celebrate with her husband, Matt, and their little daughter, Katie, and their whole family. And it's appropriate that when we pray and ask the Lord for things, that we celebrate and thank him when he does uh, those good things for us and those we love. Also want to let you know, uh, Bob Coster is uh, recovering. He fell a couple of weeks ago here after a service and sustained a few injuries. He's been in rehab at Mary and Joy Center. Uh, Claudia is here today. She told me he'll be coming home Thursday and that we're still praying for his gradual recovery and for teachable spirit as he uh, learns some new ways uh, to live and do things. So pray for Bob and Claudia today. And finally, uh, we want to remember those who cannot be with us in person. There's still a number of our uh, church family who are uh, faithfully watching online. One of them I was able to visit uh, last week. Uh, his name is Henry Flora. I don't know if many of you remember Henry. Henry and his wife were members here for a number of years until Henry can no longer attend. Henry is now 104 years old. Uh, he lives uh, with assisted care in his home in Aurora. Hi, Henry. I know you watch. Uh, we're, we're sorry you're not here, but we're glad you're watching. We want you to know that we love you and we care for you. Uh, but just a remarkable gentleman, uh, faithful to the Lord, watches us every week at his home. Uh, so if you remember Henry, pray for him and thank God for his life. And there are others too as well that we remember this morning. So let's bow in prayer as we come to this time. The anthem said it well, Lord, O great God of highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts. For you have purchased and loved us and make us yours forevermore. So Lord, we do lift up to you our prayer concerns today. First of all, we give you great praise and thanksgiving for what you've done in Jenny's body and life and in her family. We know that um, these last eight months have been unimaginably difficult, full of pain and fear and treatment and loneliness and questions. But we, we thank you that through medicine, through doctors, through the prayers of so many, and so many have come alongside in other ways just to help and care for that family. We thank you for this good news. Lord, we know Jenny still has a way to go, and we continue to hold her up before you, and knowing that she would want you to have glory for what you've done and for whatever you will do uh, in the days that lie ahead. We pray for our friend Bob as he recovers at Mary and Joy. We ask for renewed strength uh, to his body, healing uh, of the things that still need to be healed, and as he comes home, that you would give him a, a grateful and uh, teachable spirit that as he learns new ways to get around and new ways to live, that, uh, that that would be a peaceful and good time for he and Claudia during these days. 
Lord, we thank you for Henry and others uh, who are uh, unable to join us in person and maybe watching even uh, online right now, uh, that they will know that they are loved, that you love them, and you see them, and you know them, and that you are with them by your Spirit. And even though they can't be here in person, uh, they are still part of your great family, and you will encourage them today. Lord, thank you for this time we have together to worship and then look into your word and teach us by what you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I mentioned last uh, week that we do a podcast here at Chapel Street every Monday morning. Some of you may listen to that regularly, uh, but Pastor Joe Scavato uh, came up with the idea, and he leads that podcast. And every week, he interviews two of the pastors who happened to preach the, the previous uh, day on Sunday. And we just go a little deeper into that sermon, and he asks different kinds of questions, and we try to apply it to our lives and so forth. But at the end of every episode, and if you listen, you know this— he asks a fun question called Joe Wants to Know. It's a little five-minute segment right at the end, and he asks us some uh, question to get us just talking in fun ways. Uh, so this past Monday, it was Pastor Jeff and myself, and we were the ones being interviewed for the, about the sermons. And after he asked us the serious questions about what we had preached on, it, we came to Joe Wants to Know. And his question was, if you could start your own podcast, just you yourself start your own podcast, what would it be about, and what would it be called? And so I let Pastor Jeff go first, because I know he would have a kind of a serious, pastorly kind of answer. And he said he would want to start a podcast on, guess? C.S. Lewis. No surprise there. We all saw that one coming. So when it came to my turn, I had two answers. And I thought about this ahead of time, so I wanted the fun answer. My first answer was, I would do a podcast on the wonderful world of peanut butter. Now, it may not be the perfect food, but it's close. High in protein, high in fiber, high in good, healthy fats, and you can eat it on almost anything. Waffles, pancakes, you can eat it on apples, peanut butter pie, peanut butter milkshakes. I mean, I could have probably 100 episodes on the wonderful world of peanut butter. But my second idea was a little more serious. It was finding Jesus at the movies. I believe that many, if not most, of the movies we see and love, most of the most popular movies in our culture, uh, have somewhere in them either intentionally or mostly unintentionally by Hollywood, a Jesus character or a Jesus moment hidden somewhere in that story because Jesus is the greatest story ever told. And it finds its way into the stories that we tell each other. For example, the movie Miracle came out a long time ago about the 1980 USA Olympic hockey team has a moment in it uh, when after a particular uh, lackluster performance by this team, the coach made them get back on the ice and start skating uh, sprints, the, 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 the hockey equivalent of wind sprints, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then over and over again, he would ask them, who do you play for? Now, these were all college athletes. So when they answered his question, they would say, I play for University of Minnesota, or I play for Boston College, or I play for Notre Dame. And he'd, he'd make them get back on the ice and keep skating, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Finally, uh, they were exhausted 
uh, falling down on the ice, and one player, who eventually became the captain of the team, just croaked out, I'm Mike Arruzzioni, I play for the United States of America. And that was what the coach wanted to hear, and he ended the sprints and said, just remember, gentlemen, the name on the front of your jersey, USA, is a whole lot more important than the one on the back of it, which was their personal name. What that coach was doing was challenging their motivation. More than that, he was challenging their sense of identity as individuals and as a team. And we're going to see here in just a few moments, that's a Jesus moment, because that's the same thing Jesus taught us as his followers. We're in a part two of a series that we're calling The Way. It's going to last all the way through the fall. And last week we looked at uh, the beginning of the series, John 14, verse 6, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We talked about how truth matters, how Jesus' claim is indeed exclusive. There is no other way to God the Father, and yet how his claim is also inclusive in that his way is open to anyone, anyone who will come to him by faith. Now today we move on to one of Jesus' most well-known, but also one of the more difficult passages to understand. A little context first. Uh, The passage we're going to look at and study today comes to us in Luke chapter 9, and it comes right after a miracle story. Uh, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. As you remember the story with the five uh, five loaves and two fish and all the people and there were leftovers collected and all that. And crowds are everywhere now. Uh, Crowds uh, have heard about him. He's feeding the hungry. He's healing the sick. His popularity is is at an all-time high. And then we read, And this is not the passage yet, but it's preliminary to what we're going to study. We read that now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Remember, the crowds are all coming around. He's just fed them. And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, uh, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now there it is, Peter's proclamation of faith. Jesus is the Christ of God, the Messiah, uh, the one who fulfills all the promises of God foretold in the prophets. And then Jesus says something that had to be both shocking and confusing. Reading on, Luke 9, verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. Now, this had to be confusing to them because things were going great as far as what they could see. In two or three years, Jesus had established his ministry. People were flocking to see him. They were proclaiming him to be the next Messiah, the coming promised king. Uh, uh, They were on the ground floor of his kingdom, and maybe they were going to get positions of honor. And now he talks about being rejected, being killed. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, at this moment, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. He says, no, 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 this will never happen to you. In other words, stop talking like this. And then before they can even ask another question, we come to our text for today. It's in Luke 9, beginning in verse 23. And he, Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes into his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, before we jump into our study, um, when we read this whole text, we're usually fascinated by that last sentence, the last thing Jesus says, some of you will not taste death. Now, what's that all about? I want to kind of get that out of the way so you're not wondering about it, and we'll move into our study for today. Most New Testament scholars think Jesus is referring to either A, the transfiguration, which is the very next story in Luke chapter 9, when Peter, James, and John see Jesus in all his glory. <coughs> Others say maybe it's, he's referring to the resurrection, which was just a month or two away, uh, which Jesus uh, became proclaimed the, the Son of God through his resurrected life. Or see the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which was a few months away. But our focus today is on three verbs. Just three verbs that Jesus uses to describe what it means to follow him. The three words are deny, take up, and follow. First, deny. On my trip um, a few weeks ago to Nepal, and I shared a lot about that with you last Sunday, uh, we were in Kathmandu, I think, uh, walking uh, to dinner at, at the end of a day, and coming across the street, I saw a young Nepali woman wearing a T-shirt that proclaimed simply one phrase, CEO of myself. Now, this, I couldn't find the exact version of that T-shirt. This just says, I am CEO of my life. Um, it struck me as strange to see that T-shirt in Nepal uh, because perhaps no statement better represents our current North American culture than that, CEO of myself. That's the gospel of our culture in a nutshell. Follow your heart. Just be true to yourself. Find your own truth. But Jesus here has a very, very different message. Again, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, Jesus' call to deny yourself uh, would have been countercultural even in first century, uh, the first century world. But in the world we live in today, it's shockingly countercultural. If, 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 uh, if anything, it sounds almost crazy to our culture. Because we live in a culture that says, affirm yourself, love yourself, follow yourself. Let me ask, I'm going to ask two questions today. First, what is the self? And secondly, what does Jesus mean by deny yourself? First, what is the self? Now, the self is, uh, I found out, very difficult to define. You can find all kinds of psychological and philosophical definitions but perhaps the best way to think of the self is as an operating system for our lives. Uh, I brought my computer today. Now, I'm not a computer guy. I tend to treat computers like they're magic. You know, if they work, the magic's great. If they don't, I just take it to Kenton. Kenton understands computers. Um, but I don't know how they work. But I'm told that they have an operating system. 
Somewhere in this machine is what's called an operating system. And it manages all the computer's processes and memory. It, it runs all the software, all the programs, what I use to write my sermon, what I use to find images to put on the screens for you. It, it, it operates everything. And without the operating system, a computer is absolutely useless. And I think the self, the self is like an operating system for a human being. It directs how we think, how we feel, how we organize our lives. The self is what determines our priorities, our decisions, our behavior. The self is the center of who we are. Now, according to historian and theologian Carl Truman, human beings have always had a sense of self. It's part of what makes us human, to have a sense of self. But how we think of ourselves has changed dramatically, especially in the last two to three hundred years here in the West, meaning the Western Hemisphere. For centuries, uh, people thought of themselves in relation to or even in subjugation to others around them, that is, family and community or to God, the self in relation to those things. Uh, but now we tend to think of ourselves as independent and even prior to everything else around us. To put it simply, uh, where people used to interpret their self in light of the world around them, we now interpret the world around us in light of ourselves. Does that make sense? The self is now the source of truth. The self is now the thing that matters most. The self is now Lord and King in our culture. And if you pay attention to everything from TV commercials to television shows to news shows, that is the message that's being preached in our culture. The self is king. And that leads to the second question. What does Jesus mean when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself? Now, Peter has already proclaimed, <coughs> excuse me, uh, confirmed who Jesus is. He is the Christ the anointed one of God, the Messiah. And now Jesus talks about coming after him, what we would call discipleship. And he says in order to do that, we need a change in our operating system. We need a change at the very center of who we are. Now sometimes I think we have a tendency to think about discipleship or spiritual life kind of like we think about dieting. If I want to get a little bit healthier, if I want to drop a few pounds, let's say, I have to deny myself, right? I have to deny myself a second helping of mashed potatoes and gravy, maybe, or I have to deny myself snacks after 9 o'clock at night. I have to maybe even deny myself a little peanut butter. So when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, we think that if we could just, we'd be, uh, could just be a little bit more like Jesus... Uh, if we want to do that, we, want to just, we have to just deny ourselves a few things. Like my mom, uh, who passed away a couple of years ago, used, used to say that when she uh, came to Christ, when she was 19 years old, uh, she was convinced that it meant that she was going to have to live the rest of her life without makeup, uh, okay, and without having any fun. But she knew she needed Jesus, so she just resigned herself to living a life of being ugly and boring. <laughs> Took her a while to understand that's not really what it meant. 
Now, of course, there are things we must deny ourselves, things that are sinful. But when we try to do that without a change in operating system, it's really still ourselves that are at the center of that effort. We're still trying to do all that for ourselves. The verb deny means to renounce or forsake. So I think what Jesus is saying is that to follow him, I must not just deny myself things, a few small things around the perimeter of my life. I must deny myself. The operating system that has been controlling everything that I do and think about that lives at the center of me. I must relinquish my position as CEO of myself. What that means is that we cannot simultaneously follow Jesus and follow ourselves. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Colossians he writes, For you have died, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the primary meaning of self-denial is not denying things for yourself, like that extra piece of chocolate cake or that new car. Rather, self-denial for a Christian means renouncing oneself as the center of your existence, as your operating system. So the question becomes, who then is Lord? Who then is the CEO? Who then is the operating system at the center of your life? And Jesus cannot be Lord as long as I am still wearing the CEO t-shirt. Side note. Another way of thinking about this is that Jesus calls for radical reformation of our identity. And I think um, we as the Christians and as the church, as pastors, have largely abdicated the discussion of identity to our culture. And our culture has taken it. Our, 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 our social discourse now is dominated by topics like identity politics and sexual identity. But identity should belong to us as believers in the Bible, followers of Jesus, because it's all over the New Testament. Jesus said, you must be born again. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And I've come to believe that many of us who have spent years and years in the church Uh, have kind of tended to shorten the gospel down to believe in Jesus, get your sins forgiven, go to heaven when you die. And that's true, of course, but it misses some of the power of the gospel. I believe the gospel promises us four things. You've heard me say them before, and I'll say them again. A new heart, which is the forgiveness of sins. A new identity, that is, we are adopted into God's family We're given a new operating system that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, tells us who we are. Then a new purpose to live in and for his eternal kingdom and new destiny to reign with Christ forever in the new heaven and new earth. New heart, new identity, new purpose, and new destiny. And I think that's what Jesus means when he says, for whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? and lose or forfeit himself. What Jesus is saying is to receive his promise of life, 
we must deny ourself, the selves. Secondly, he says, take up. The second verb, take up. Uh, while we were in Nepal, I w- uh, the group I was with visited a number of uh, brand new churches um, scattered around the hills surrounding Kathmandu. These are very small gatherings of 10 or 20 new believers. They had no church buildings at all. They meet, uh, gather wherever they can in uh, homes and half-built buildings. Uh, this one met that we visited in a simple brick home. And the only thing that distinguished the space was a small painted cross on the wall. You can see it up above that man's head. Here's a close-up. And I looked around. This was an open, half-finished half brick building. And when I noticed, that's the only thing I noticed on the wall that set it apart as a church. The cross. Jesus says we are to not deny something, that is to renounce, to put away something, and that is something is the self, the central operating system of our lives. And now he says we are to take up something. The word means to pick up, lift up, or carry, and he says what we are to carry is our cross. Now what does that mean? What would it have meant to the first disciples who were listening to Jesus when he said it? Remember, remember, Jesus had not yet gone to the cross. These first disciples did not have the New Testament. They didn't have the perspective that we have. They could not have known that the cross was going to become a symbol of forgiveness, of love, and of hope. To them, the cross could only have meant one thing. It was a brutal instrument of Roman torture and death. The most shameful way to die that they could ever imagine. The cross. So when a condemned man carried his cross, he was li- his life was over. He was under the total, absolute authority of Rome. And Rome was going to claim his life. So I think we can safely say that, that Jesus is not talking here about some of the trials or difficulties or inconveniences of our lives. In one of my dad's churches years ago, uh, there was a man <clears throat> who came to church by himself, and I've told stories about him before. He came to church by himself. His wife never came with him. Um, and he would often pray about his wife in church. Notice, he wouldn't pray for his wife in church. He would pray about his wife in church. He saw prayer as a way to confess his wife's sins. Oh, Lord, you know my wife, Lord. You know how difficult she can be. You know how she's my cross to bear, Lord. No wonder she never came to church with him, right? But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Your difficult boss is not your cross to bear. My arthritis is not my cross to bear. That's not what he's talking about. The cross was an implement of death, not a little inconvenience. It means death, death to the old way of thinking about myself. It means allegiance to Jesus and his cross as our our identity. Now, following Jesus may lead to suffering and death, but the primary thing Jesus is saying is that if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself, and if you want to identify with me, you must take up your cross. That is, your old way of living is done. You live under my authority, my direction, and your allegiance is to me daily, he says. In his 
well-known book, The Cost of Discipleship, German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. As we embark on discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death, death of the old man at his call. So why daily? Daily. Isn't it once and done? Don't you pray that prayer once and you're done? Why does he say daily? Well, because daily, the old operating system of the self will try to take over. Daily. Our spiritual enemy will whisper to us, you, you really can't trust him to know what's best for you. I mean, really, what's he done for you lately? Only you can trust you. Only you know what's best for you. And we listen, or we're tempted to listen, because we like to be in the driver's seat. I like to be in the driver's seat. I think this is what Paul may have been talking about in Romans chapter 7, and I don't have this verse on the screens, but listen. Paul writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then thirdly, follow. Follow me. That's the third verb. Uh, most of us can remember as kids playing a little game called follow the leader. You know, uh, when you play follow the leader, you, you pick one uh, kid to be the leader, and everybody does what that person does. You go where they go, you do what they do, you flap your arms, you jump, you walk, you skip, whatever, but you follow the leader, you do what they do, you go where they go. You might remember the old advertising campaign, Be Like Mike. Remember? Mike was the basketball star Michael Jordan, and to be like Mike, of course, meant drink Gatorade, right? Every human being follows someone, without exception. Every human being follows someone or something. The Greek word translated follow here means to follow one who precedes, to walk in the same way as. So to become a disciple means to follow Jesus. But how? Where? Where is Jesus going? What way does he walk? Paul expresses this beautifully in some verses in Philippians chapter 2. He writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So where our culture uh, teaches and preaches, follow yourself, climb the ladder of success. Uh, do what makes you happy. Jesus climbs down the ladder of humility, servanthood, obedience. So how can we possibly follow that example? Through a new operating system. And that operating system is called the Holy Spirit. 
In Romans chapter 8, Paul again writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, or self. That's what the flesh means. But those who live according to the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's identity. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So many things there. But Paul mentions the Spirit seven times in these verses. To say it simply, the Holy Spirit is the promised gift of God that empowers us to follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the new operating system of a believer's life. And then this is what allows our lives to produce what are called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Paul again, Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, the self, with its passions and desires. So we began the series um, called The Way by saying there was something different, uh, something uniquely attractive about the earliest Christian community. We saw that back in Acts chapter 2. And there was something attractive about that community. The book of Acts tells us that that they enjoyed the favor of all the people and that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I think what made the people of the way, that is, the first followers of Jesus that the Spirit shaped into a church, what made the followers of the way so attractive was that they followed the way of Jesus. They had surrendered themselves to him. They had identified with the cross. They were empowered by the Spirit, so they were learning to live like Jesus lived. They were learning to love like Jesus loved. They were learning to serve like Jesus served. And in following him, they found great joy and great hope. And that life, that way of living, that joy, and that hope was so different, so attractive, so irresistible to the world around them that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So I think for us today, the question that that Olympic hockey coach asked changes a bit from who do you play for to who do we live for? Who do we live for? Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for your clear call to follow. Teach us what it means to deny ourselves to invite you and surrender to your spirit as the operating system of our lives. Teach us what that means. Teach us what it means to take up our cross, to identify with your authority, with your life, 
with your death, with your promise. And teach, about, teach us what it means to follow you. And thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live in you and for you. So we ask that you make our lives and our collective life as your church so, so unique, so different, so attractive, that the world around us would be drawn to this life that only you can give. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. I receive now the benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us and calls us to follow him. Amen. Have a great day.